Well, I hope that y'all have been listening carefully uh, to what's been said by the two speakers who preceded me, because I want you to have it in your minds uh, as I turn the tables on the folks they've been talking about, if I can. In order to introduce you to a way of looking at what they are saying and doing that might reveal uh, its real nature because I'm addressing its real purpose. The idea that you've been, that we have been subject to has, to has to do with what has contributed to the rise of so-called identity politics uh, in the United States and in Europe and in other parts of the world. It has to do ostensibly uh, with encouraging people to stand forward boldly in order to show their, their pride and display uh, the power of their belief in themselves and in who they are. But if you pause for a minute to think carefully about what you've heard, exactly, exactly what are these identities that we're talking about? When we talk about them, two things usually come out and they come together. Identity <coughs> is a word that's thrown about a lot. And then when you start to look at the, at the content of this identity, uh, the other word that's often used because it reflects the analysis is, is victim or victimization. Yes? Now let's stand back. I've spent a, a good deal of uh, time in the course of my life for reasons that should be obvious. Pondering this, this whole idea of victim, victimhood, victimization, uh, because everywhere around me when I was growing up, especially as we got into the 60s and 70s when I was in high school and college and so forth, uh, the whole world was encouraging people like myself to look back at our past and our heritage in order to see how the people we descended from had been victimized by people who were demeaning their humanity and slaving their labor and robbing them of its fruits. I actually spent some time in the late 80s, 90s writing a book about this. And you know what I discovered when I went back to actually look? I, I read the accounts and I looked at um, the folks whose lives they were describing, uh, people I, I knew to some extent kind of intimately because I'd grown up with people whom I'm sort of related to or descended from and got a sense of who were my grandparents and what they were like and so forth. And the study I did confirmed what had been a problem for me. I found, it, I found it, in spite of the fact that I appreciated the difficulties and the hardships, I saw them right there in the life of my family as I grew up, and the hardships and, and difficulties that were faced by my father and my mother at various points in their life. I understood it perfectly. But it had never occurred to me that they were victims. Why not? Because those weren't people I knew. The people I knew were not victims. 
The people I knew were people who worked hard in spite of adversity. The people I knew were people who understood their own worth and took pride in it in spite of what might have been the opinion of the world or the opinion of those who thought that they were manipulating and brutalizing and enslaving them. And I also saw something else. What was the source of that? Not just in my immediate parents, but in folks that I knew and respected within my family. What was the source of it? Well, the source of it was quite simply what you and I, many people in this room, would refer to as their faith. Why would that make a difference? Well, to understand why it makes such an important difference, let's, let's stay on the back and, and, and let's consider for a moment this, this question of one's identity as an empty slate. <laughs> and, and, and if you have accepted the view that is at the heart of both intersectionalism, feminism, uh, and the whole ideology of identity politics based in victimization. There is on the empty slate of this identity, the question you have to ask, there's going to be something on it. It's going to be called a woman. It's going to be called a, a, a black or black American. It's going to be called a Native American, and so forth and so on. Who is it? And to whom do you turn to understand who the, the folks are, what are the component elements of the people whose identity is being portrayed on that black slate? To put it simply, who is the artist that determines what will be drawn in to correspond to their identity? And I stand back and I think about it. Well, if it were little Alan Keyes looking at his parents, I, I, I wouldn't be drawing with a stylus that that portrayed brutality and oppression and, and defined my parents in, in, in terms of what the brutalizer, the enslaver, the exploiter had done to them. No, I, I would define them in terms of what they did. And, and even if it meant looking at what they did, I would refine, define them first what they do to me, how they care for me, well or ill, how they raise me up well or ill, how they make me feel well or ill, I do that. If I were drawing it, if I were drawing it, I wouldn't be defining it in terms of the brutality that is done to them. I'd be defining it in terms of the courage and strength that was shown to endure that brutality no matter what and to keep intact the heart that was capable of teaching me to respect myself of teaching me in such a way that I would come to love my parents so that the hearts, though broken, the hearts, though broken, were still enduring. It reminds me of a wonderful line I recall from the, from the movie Ivanhoe, I think back in the 50s, depicting, depicting a, a Jewish uh, father who's merchant, and he sees that his daughter is falling in love with the hero of the movie, who happens to be an English knight. Now, he knows in, in his uh, wiser heart that there's no hope, there is no future for that love between them. And, and, and so it saddens him. Uh, and, and he's having a, a talk with his daughter, and she uh, admits that she has these feelings and, and that her heart is breaking. And her response, his response to her was, my heart was broken 
long ago. And it serves me still. See? <coughs> now that's a human being, like my parents in many ways, who understands that you are not made by the people who seek to break you. You are not made by their brutality. You are made by your own love. You're not made by their exploitation. You are made by your own dedication to what is right and true and good in light of your sense of what your humanity requires. But, but how do you sustain that in the face of, of the facts that are crushing you down with the material weight of superior powers. Well, according to the Marxist ideology from which all these people now derive what they're trying to foist off on the rest of us, you don't recover. No, the only thing you can do is fight. The only thing you can do is amass power for yourself. The only thing you can do is come together in such a way that the power of your power, the force of it, will crush them down and you will have your vengeance. Yes? Yeah, that's the only way you can recover, they say. Your, your broken heart can't be mended, but you can break heads, the heads of others. And where does that lead? To a bunch of people on one side with broken hearts and a bunch of people on the other side with broken heads. And if you understand the consequences of really breaking hearts and breaking heads, they are all of them dead and gone. It is actually an understanding that encourages mutual annihilation. Have you noticed that? It is. No, I don't think so. I don't think a lot of people have noticed that. I think a lot of people have passed that by. They think that something's left, but there's nothing left. That gives you a hint about who's painting in these identities. So you think of identity in that way, and the end result is not to lift up in pride and everything one side or the other. The end is to urge each side one to continue to pummel the heart because all that matters is power, and the other to continue to bash out the brains because all that matters is power. And you end up with people, headless, heartless people, people without brains and without love who have no destiny but their mutual annihilation. Could that be what they want? Could that be what they aim to produce? And if you want to resist it, what do you do? Well, let's go back to where we were, we were looking. Because when I looked at my parents and asked myself, how did, how did they avoid getting involved in that, in that logic of mutual annihilation? The answer was very simple. They did not see themselves, and they taught me never to agree to see myself as the product of someone else's evil someone else's brutality, someone else's oppression of me or anybody else. Because my identity is not the creation of my oppressor. When are people going to wake up? A lot of the young people now, I understand why they don't wake up, I guess, because nobody's tell, uh, saying anything different to them, but you've got to. You see, because if you go down the road of this, this intersectionality and this identity politics, 
You're allowing someone else to create you. Whoever it is who has convinced you that your identity consists in your oppression, that person has persuaded you to accept the identity that is your material fate because of your oppressor. Someone who teaches you to accept the identity that essentially is the result of the power of your oppressor. Who do they serve? You or the one who oppresses you? I have the sad thing about this right now, as I, as I thought about it preparing to come here, as I think about it now, there's no way that I can say all of this without the underlying imputation that, that people just haven't been using their heads very well. They've been responding to all of this stuff that's been thrown at them. And, and they think to me, I'm going to be free, I'm going to be proud, I'm going to be lifted up by these ideologies. And in fact, at the heart of the ideology represents the assumption that the master is the master, that the oppressor is the power, and that at the end of the day, who you are has been determined by what they have done to you. You stand, therefore, in a world where all these other human powers and human beings end up being your creator. They make you what you are. And whatever lies people tell to you who sell you on this garbage, the end result of that is not self-ownership. And, 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 and it is not self-respect. It is that you you consent to go on being manipulated as the fodder in a war of all against all in which there will be no survivors but those who have induced the combatants to fight it out unto the death. Hmm? That's what it's all about. Now, why is faith an antidote? Well, faith's an antidote for a very obvious reason. See, the reason, and I do believe it's, it is the uh, reason I believe, I have, have never been tempted to accept the false identity of victimization. I am not a victim. Uh, I may be many things. I may have had to endure many things, and I may have been in the position of victim for, for many reasons that, some time or other in my life, but it is not what I am because it is not what I was made to be. Right? And why would I say that? Because I was not made by the, by the intellectuals who have invented their understanding of my blackness uh, or of my, of my slave ancestry or anything else. My starting point for my understanding of who I am is not my oppressor and it's not my propagandizer. It is the Lord, my God, who made me to be human, mm. who made me to be loving, who made me to be free to do his will. And so I remain not the master of myself, 
And yet by virtue of my knowledge of the true source of my identity, the master of my fate, beyond oppression, beyond victimization, and beyond the manipulation of those who wish that I should join in the combat unto death so that they may live in a world without me in it. And, and you know, I think if you just stand back for a moment and, and stop using their words and stop giving in to their silly concepts, you'll realize what's really happening. Is it a coincidence, for instance, that the people who are now given their money to propagandize the world with this superficial garbage, this exploitative madness, are, are also people who believe that the carrying capacity of the world is less than a billion people? How many people in the world today? How many people? Seven billion, I think, close to it. It's above that, heading on toward whatever, but it's about seven billion. How do you get from seven billion people down to less than a billion? Well, I suppose you're gonna to have to kill people or let them die because procreation doesn't really permit you to take that big number seven and cut it back without a lot of work. So you, you must either kill them or they must kill themselves or they must kill their offspring or the world must be filled with epidemics and cataclysms that kill them off. Isn't it funny that we live in a world now where all the creative elitists who spread this bunk teach us to assume that the world will be filled with epidemics. Teach us to assume that the weapons of mass destruction will destroy us hither and thither and yon. Teach us to assume that there will be no life but for those who are the hangers on of their power. For only power matters. And if you give in to it, then you're going to give in to fulfilling that prediction by accepting the identity they have given you. That's the problem with intersectionality. What's coming together is not who you are. What's coming together is who you are made to be. All the fragmented pieces. Now, come on. It, 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 it strikes me as kind of strange that people wouldn't just stand back. It's common sense that's needed here, not a lot of statistics or analysis and so forth and so on. Because at any given moment, think about who you are. I ain't given a moment. I am. I'm a man. I'm a black person. I'm a father. I'm a Roman Catholic. Uh, I'm uh, somebody who has been, one way or another, uh, sometimes uh, quite badly put upon because I spent too much time reading and was too intellectual. People forget that intellectuals are an oppressed class, don't they? Especially these days. I didn't forget it when I was in junior high school. Didn't forget it when I was in college. Didn't forget it all the time when, when uh, being that intellectual was not to be identified with the kind of things people wanted to go to the dance with and so forth. See what I'm saying? So, so which of us is not composed of many different identities? That's like, that's like the most obvious thing in the world. They dress it up in fancy language and call it intersectionality and all of this. And then we start to fall for their lies. Uh, because are we really? Are we really all those different people? Well, no, we're not. Those are all different aspects. 
of one person. How do we become one person? Do we become one person by the wielding of power? No, actually, we become one person by virtue of a gift from God. A gift from God which introduces, quite without our leave, really, the pathways that if we simply allow them to operate, will eventually have us distinguishing ourselves from the crib and ourselves from the bulb and ourselves from the wall and ourselves from the hand that lifts us up and ourselves from the breast against which we are laid and ourselves from the face into which we look and the voice that we hear. We come to understand ourselves as the locus of that experience not because they made us, not because we made ourselves, but because God made us with the faculty that allows us finally to arrive at that conclusion, which allowed, which allowed Adam to look at Eve and say, she is flesh of my flesh and bone of my bone, the birth of self-consciousness. Now here's the point that that I think is most essential to take away from that. And if we could somehow get this message out to the generations now being, if you'll excuse me for doing the word, using the word, victimized by self-serving intellectuals who are the tool of the new class of oppressors, the would-be socialist totalitarian tyrants who want to take over our nation and take over the world and repress the natural resources that God has given us to resist that form of victimization which dictate who we are when we know that the only dictation that went into it is the dictation that gave us the wherewithal to choose this day whom we will serve, God or the forces of a world that seek to destroy us. See? I don't want us to remember this, but we must start by remembering it. Sozio Nietzsche was right. Our big problem is that we've forgotten God. And if you forget God, what's the first thing you forget? And here I must turn to the particular benefits and advantages of the Christian understanding. What's the first thing that we are told in the scripture by God about ourselves? In the image and likeness of God. He created him. Male and female, he created them. Isn't that the first thing? It's often, it's often had me wondering about people who profess to believe in the Bible, how, how, how they could adopt all of these new notions, pretend that it's all loving and instructed by the heart of Christ and all of this, when what it involves is having to admit that God lied to us about ourselves on the very first page, practically, of the Bible, in the very first words he spoke about us, he lied to us about ourselves. I don't believe people who are willing to accept an ideology that reaches that conclusion about God when they tell me they still worship him, when they tell me they still honor him, when they tell me they still acknowledge his authority. I am quite sure 
that they are either insane or they lie. For you cannot reach that conclusion when you have made God a liar about the very thing that's most important in your life, which is who you are. But in telling us this, in telling us this truth about ourselves, what is he telling us? And I've got to tell you, in a practical way, it's been really important to me. And it's informed many things. And I, uh, one of the things it informed was my patriotism, why I learned to love America. I basically learned to love America because of the Declaration of Independence. And the Declaration of Independence is premised on what? That we are all created. And that that means that I am not in my identity, the result of my own passion, the result of my own choice, the result of an oppressor's choice to brutalize my family or my ancestors or myself. What I am is the result of the will and power and loving intention of Almighty God. And he told me what that intention is on the very first page, practically, of his word about me. He made me to be in the image and likeness of God to reflect the power that is beyond all powers and the will that can constrain all wills, producing the future that can encompass every hope and every dream and every possibility of that humanity that he made me to be and to achieve. <laughs> Which one of the, their powers and their verbiage and their nonsense can be the equal of this identity that I bear in spite of them, in spite of the world, in spite of every indignity that has been or could ever be done to me. For I stand above it all, basking in the glow of the image of God that shines forth upon me and that shines from within me because of his will. There is no substitute for this. There is no way they can overpower us when the source of who we are has nothing to do with their power and everything to do with the power they can never touch, whose results they can never change. And, and, and that, my friends, is why this nation not only endured, but triumphed to become the greatest nation in a material sense, in the history of the earth. It is because at the end of the day, the root of our identity, which became also a source of possible greatness, was not our power, but the power of God and the power of that spirit within us by which he communicates to us the truth. In his intention, we are worth more than the powers and more than the gold and more than all the material aspects of the universe entire. For it exists within his being that transcends it. And we reflect not the universe, but the God who made it. This is the gospel we must preach. And I would argue that we shouldn't waste too much time preaching it against those who speak such drivel and want us to accept it as who we are. We have no need. It is time we get back to the business of being who we are according to the scriptures. 
We are the sons and daughters of God. We are the heirs to the kingdom standing with Jesus Christ in whom we believe. We are therefore the rulers of our own identity, the shapers of our own future. So long as we walk the walk that is the path of Christ's heart and God's creation. This is where I think we will find not just a reinvigoration of our nation, but the revival of our living, working, converting faith. For we must not move into the world in response to the lies of those who think they can remake us by deceit. We must move into the world in response to the law and will of love of the God who made us beyond their reach and will keep us beyond their reach as we fulfill the hopes he has nourished and cherished for us since long before time began. For even then he had in mind that he himself would come if need be to save us from the world of destruction in which they mean us to perish. Mm -hmm.